in the first part of our quest, we adventurers rescued a gilded book from the covetous grasp of the greedy Northmen. And in the second part of our quest, we returned a sacred selkie coat to the salty brines of the shores of Northern Ireland. Hello, I'm Caitlin Kadju. I'm an animator and illustrator. And I'm Ira Marks. I write and I draw comics. This is a podcast about cartoons where two lifelong artists and fans talk about the mysterious and magical process of bringing good cartoon stories to life. And in this third part of our Cartoon Saloon quest, we travel to a land where its people are its greatest treasure, inside of Nora Toomey's The Breadwinner. Welcome to Cartoon Feelings. friends, this is Ira just dropping in to let you know we had a little technical difficulty with my audio track, so it does not sound great for the first 40 minutes of this episode. Lots of good content, just my audio track is a bit of a mess. So if you have sensitive ears and it bothers you, just skip to 44 minutes in and everything is perfect again. Okay, thanks. On with the show. When we started this podcast... You know, it was only 10 weeks ago now, so happy 11th anniversary. Jesus. We did it. That feels like so long ago. I know. Well, I think we've come a long way, actually. Like, I can't believe we're at the breadwinner. I didn't think this is where we would be 11 weeks and talking about an 11-year-old girl from Afghanistan. I thought we would be talking about the frog in um, the old Looney Tunes cartoon that sings when you're not looking at him. The Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey frog. Yeah, I thought we'd be there, but no, we're here. I mean, I can't tell if you're saying that we are failing <laughs> or or if we are like being advanced. I, I'm just surprised. I love it. I'm happy to be wherever. I'm happy to talk about any fucking cartoon. Yeah, I kind of... This also raises the good point that we can talk about that frog too. And maybe we should make a formal plan <laughs> to get him on the docket. That frog is going on the list, I think. We're going to get, like, uh, cartoon whiplash as we just jump from, like, <laughs> drastically different subject matter. <laughs> like, at least it's cartoon feelings, you know? It's any of them. All of them. Yeah. It's an open-ended <laughs> premise. And the audience demands that we talk about the frog, so... Yeah, okay, so make a note. Well, we're, we're back in kind of contemporary times. I thought it was funny with, well, we're talking about the breadwinner today, obviously, if you don't know that for some reason. But uh, just some initial research, I was like, what other stuff was coming out in 2017? And aside from, you know, the usual fare of the box office, I just thought it was funny to, to pair up the Academy Award nominations for 2017's Best Animated Feature. Because it's uh, Ferdinand, which I never saw, looked cute. Same, no interest. <laughs> and then Boss Baby, <laughs> which I also haven't seen, and I'm I'm sure somebody loves it. 
I think you should see it. I've only seen it once, and it's just as bizarre and off-putting as you would imagine. But it's one of those weird things where you watch it and you're like, okay, but whoever worked on this, like, really knows how to design well. Like, the design and, like, illustration stuff in that movie is so good. It's very bizarre because I do find it not good <laughs> content-wise. Um, but yeah, I was just like really blown away at, at some of the scenes where I'm like, the character design's really good and like, you're whatever, like these different things. It's just funny. Yeah. And it, it's not like Breadwinner is a perfect story. I'm not giving it more credit because of the subject matter. It's just interesting that what America, I don't know, we talked a little bit about this last week, but what America considers the genre of animation, like the medium of animation is basically just a genre as far as like awards like mainstream awards are considered. And I know awards are stupid in general, but they are also kind of the way a lot of people are introduced to some of these films, you know? Well, yeah, like even just in you say that, and I'm like, even like, don't get the awards involved. It's just like most people in America consider it a genre and don't understand anything about it and honestly don't really care about it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's just, yeah, like the vast majority of people don't seem to understand that it's not like... There's like drama and thrillers and cartoon and like et cetera. It's yeah, like it's, not it, it's just it's just so clear when you see a, a list of nominations and just Boss Baby and Breadwinner are just right next to each other, as if those two things had anything to do with each other, other than they are both called cartoons. No, I don't. I think you're overlooking the critical plot relevance of Boss Baby to the story of an 11 year old girl living. In Afghanistan. Ooh, that would be the, the true challenge. Not, I, I was sort of challenged to um, do research for this episode just so I didn't sound totally stupid talking about war and America. Yeah. And things. <laughs> I but I would be even more challenged to try to pair Boss Baby and Breadwinner as to like parallel narratives. That will be our next podcast. <laughs> we'll talk more about that off the air. Did you look up the uh, Rotten Tomatoes for this this piece of art? Uh, I believe it was 95%. Am I wrong? No, you're right. Um, now that we're talking about this most critical number before we move on to lesser things, such as plot, a theme, etc. Uh, I don't believe this movie had a wide release in the United States. Uh, so I, I don't actually know the numbers either on like how many reviews factored into that Rotten Tomatoes score. It's just interesting to note much like all of Cartoon Saloon's movies up to this point have been sort of elusive in terms of like the American screening and audience. This one, I feel like it was just like not really, I think it was purely in a limited run, probably to get uh, award consideration. I don't, I really don't believe that it had a like a theatrical run though in the States. Yeah, I mean, I remember no marketing for this movie. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's how we had a period about a lot of this stuff. So. I think just the way that, that there was no like studio promotion for it in the just to like a general audience. So yeah, this one just passed me by. I was I was not even aware of it when it came out. All right, so the breadwinner from 2017 is just a quick summary for y'all. It's the story of a headstrong girl in Afghanistan during the Taliban rule, and she's forced to disguise herself as a boy to provide for her family. So something I did not know until after watching this movie is that it's based on a book. True. 
Have you, you and we neither of us have read this book. No, it was a young adult novel by Deborah Ellis. It came out in 2001. Yeah. So a little about Deborah Ellis. Uh, for I'm actually pretty, I, I don't think this movie is perfect by any means, but I was very interested in its production because, you know, last week we talked a little bit about styles of storytelling and we like to talk about the responsibility of the storyteller in animation. And to me, this one sets kind of a high bar because it's it's doing a lot. It's making a lot of effort to inform and kind of help you empathize with people in a culture that you are not likely to be familiar with if you're watching this film, whether you're uh, Canadian like Deborah or you're American like us. So I just looked into uh, the author a little bit more than I otherwise would. So Deborah is a uh, she's a fiction writer, also an activist, and her first book is from '99. And I guess this is just kind of a theme throughout her work: this kind of day-to-day life story. And uh, her first book follows a young girl in Toronto. So after that book, then she kind of jumped into some research in refugee camps in Pakistan. And that led her to Harvana's story, which I guess expands into a trilogy. I don't know if it goes any further than that. But basically what we're getting in The Breadwinner is the first part of a much bigger story. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because I couldn't find a lot of information about the subsequent books, which the first one is documented pretty well on Wikipedia and such, um, but there's not really any information about the others. But I thought this was cool looking into it, too, that this is kind of Deborah Ellis's thing as an author is that the stories that she's writing are about basically people who are, you know, subject to struggles that people like you and I and comfortable American people are not necessarily familiar with at all because like her first book looking for x that you mentioned which i haven't read but the synopsis you know makes it clear that it's about like the the characters brothers have autism and uh she like i guess she's expelled and she uh meets a homeless woman like and all of these things that like when i think of like children's books a lot of the time this is not the information that i'm thinking of and the same thing like with parvana's story where she's like she interviewed people in refugee camps uh people who would be in parvana's situation and she turned those stories into this book and it feels like her whole kind of ethos is you know how can i use my like young adult writing to talk to people about you know these issues that we're not i just think that's really cool i mean obviously deborah ellis isn't the first person ever to do something like this yeah and it's just like i kind of like seeing an author whose entire body of work is basically about using story in exactly the way that i am into in a way that is genuinely helpful to people probably and not just like well here are all my cool like wizard stories or whatever which i love cool wizard stories like don't get me wrong uh, but I just feel like this is very admirable. Like her last book that I'm aware of was from 2014. And uh, the little, you know, the sentence in Wikipedia is young adult novel based on the true story of two teenage girls who are arrested and thrown in prison in Iran, a country where homosexuality is punishable by death. And I'm like, yeah, we definitely read stuff like this in our grade schools, in our high school, you know, that kind of thing. And I just like reading that and I'm like, yes, please 
people out there, please keep writing books like this. It's really important. Um, and it does, it kind of makes me want to look more into reading some of her her books. I see that she also has a collection of short stories about um, kids who have been affected by drugs, essentially, is also the, the backstory there. And I like, I'm, that's something I would like to check out specifically. Yeah, it's a great gateway into, you know, a, a type of conversation that's otherwise extremely difficult to open, especially if you're a parent and maybe you're not necessarily like well versed in, you know, like with storytelling, there's a lot of world building that helps you understand like the plights of these characters. And without that background and that research being done by these authors, you know, it gets really difficult to talk about the people that are in these situations. So like you kind of need these books to, it's different than the news really in a lot of ways, right? It's like, this is the way kids can understand the world different than, you know, it's like something that adults don't take as much time for when they get older to, you know, take in these like personal stories. Yeah. And another thing that's interesting about this, I was kind of, I don't know how much I really have to say about it, but I was sort of saving this thought for closer to the end, but I'll throw it out here now as a general concept. But despite the fact that I work largely in editorial, I've spent like a lot of my career working for like news organizations and people that make documentaries. I personally don't really like documentaries and I don't really watch them mm-hmm. uh, for a, a bunch of reasons. And it's kind of funny because look, one of my bones that I have to pick with documentaries a lot of the time is that I do find them a little bit too manipulative and like it's a little bit too concerning to kind of keep track of what information is actually being shown to you and what isn't. Uh, it's a little bit of like where how, you know, the sausage is made. And now I'm like, like, all right, I don't know about this. Uh, but I appreciate it when fiction is used in that way, because everybody knows when you're consuming a piece of fiction that it's not true. <laughs> Uh, but I have always liked the idea, you know, where fiction is just like lying with style, essentially, to tell true stories. And that's something that I really liked about The Breadwinner is that this obviously isn't the story of a real person and her mom was this real person who was alive and the dead. Like, it's not. But it's ideas of real things that have happened, you know, to show you what that might feel like, Mm -hmm. what people in that situation might be experiencing or have experienced. And that makes me feel it more. There's something about documentaries a lot of the time that I find it puts you outside of the subject. It's like a lot of the time documentaries are like, I know you're a comfortable American sitting at home. (laughs) I'm just going to tell you this story. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. But it doesn't make me feel like... I I don't know, because I don't want to tar all documentaries with the same brush either. And it's not like the medium as a whole is just like irredeemable. It's not that. I just don't necessarily feel as close to the people as I sometimes do with a story, like a fiction story that works a little harder maybe to put you into the actual like shoes of the characters. Right. Yeah. It's like more it's a. I mean, a documentary, <laughs> we're, we're doing to documentary what we were just claiming people do to cartooning, which is like kind of, <laughs> yeah, put it all in one pile. But I think it is rare to find a documentary that lets you kind of emotionally invest in the subject, like just because of the people that tend to make documentaries aren't those type of storytellers in general. And also, I think it's a lot harder to sell, you know, maybe the idea of a documentary unless it's got that good hook 
Like, you know, I really enjoyed watching the documentary series Cheer on Netflix, which is just about a season of uh, an elite cheerleading squad. And of course, later, there's all kinds of crazy stories that come out about those people on the team. But the reason it works so well is just serendipity. Like they managed to win and it had this great, like perfect bow at the end of it. So it feels really good watching it, but I shouldn't be confusing the editing of the footage with like the journey of these real people, which I think a lot of people do, especially if you don't really like think that much about the production of film. Well, that's what, yeah, having just like, I know how the production goes and knowing like decisions that go into that. Like one of the things that gets me about this is just like documentaries tend to conduct themselves as if they are not telling you a story but of course they are that kind of a thing and like with a you know a piece of fiction it's like everybody knows somebody sat down and made this up and they are trying to tell you something i like that and probably the most successful documentaries i don't know again i don't watch that many of them in this day and age but like i'm sure a lot of them have that restraint it's just like it's just a different way of connecting and really at the end of the day too not just for kids but i feel like telling these stories in fiction like this is just a good way to reach audiences that aren't drawn for whatever reason to documentaries or don't want to really sit through the news to watch this like i don't consume a lot of like tv news for example uh but like this is a good way to introduce me myself to topics where then i'm like compelled to go home and do my own investigation and learn more about them in that way. So it's reached me on my kind of level. And then I can be like, I really need to know more about this. Like I'm going to, you know, take it from here, I guess. Right. And I, I was really thinking hard about what sort of storytelling category this fits in, because it's not, you know, it's sort of like historical fiction. It's definitely not documentary, even though it's like rooted in the real world and real events. And I, it got me really thinking about, uh, after watching this, I was really thinking about the movie The Bicycle Thief. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. So it's a 1948 film, and it kind of uh, fits in this like really loose genre of neorealism, which is basically what I think The Breadwinner is kind of. It's about really personal, small, mundane stories about people that are kind of at the edges of bigger world events. And in The Breadwinner, there's like, actual dialogue that speaks to this exactly. And so The Bicycle Thief is basically post-World War II Rome, and it's a story of a father who gets a bike so he can hang posters, and this is the job. It's like barely keeping his family afloat. And someone steals his bike, and the movie is like his journey to try to find it, and his son is with him the whole time. So it's not exactly the son's point of view, but I remember watching this when I was young and really connecting to it because there's a kid in what what, what would otherwise be a more adult dramatic film. And I thought that was just like a... I would imagine that this sort of structure of a story from a movie that was like quite popular, it's always like on the AFI list like something a lot of people that are into, you know, cinema would have watched. I feel like this idea and how to tell a story in this like neo-realistic way filtered down into like middle grade books. So to me, something like The Breadwinner is really in this, this genre of mundane stories. And that's like kind of the horror of it. Like Pravana's 
story is it's not a heroic journey. It's just about survival and getting by and like holding on to whatever you can. But they do it in this really emotional way that lets you really invest, but also you're kind of like taking in hardship and just the plainness of it all is the thing that can be like so upsetting. I do have one question. Uh, does he get the bike back? You don't have to answer in the podcast. It's just for me to know. <laughs> um, so the ending of The Bicycle Thief is basically the, the father has been pushed to his limits to try to retrieve his bicycle because it's it's been taken. He has no evidence of that. And the people in the thieves community are like standing up for the thief. So the father's just pushed to the brink and he goes to steal another bike. And now he's just the new criminal. Damn. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. To me, that's just such an important type of story to tell because it's, you, you can't really understand that whole journey. Like you can't really understand the truth of like the criminal's intentions or where they came from without a really complicated journey into their backstory. And it's something like you're not going to get from the news or anything. And it's it's just basically asking you to consider that anybody can become like the thief or, you know, the criminal. And of course, there are like truly bad people in the world also, but sometimes like a post-war country or like people in absolute despair have to turn to things is basically all it's saying. They're, they have to make like really difficult choices. So yeah, <laughs> spoiler for the bicycle thief there. That's cool, though. I'm still going to watch that movie. It sounds really intriguing to me. And I, honestly, getting a bicycle stolen, it hasn't happened to me, but I have to imagine devastating. Yeah, it's like the... I would be really sad if somebody stole my bicycle. It's it's the perfect object, too. It makes a great title, like The Bicycle Thief, or actually The Bicycle Thieves, I think, is technically the real Italian title. But I don't know. It's It's a great name. In the way, like, The Breadwinner is kind of evocative without you don't quite understand what that's going to represent until you get into it. I think the breadwinner is a good a good title as well. I agree. <laughs> so Nor- Noritumi pointed out Pan's Labyrinth is uh, an inspiration for this movie. Have you seen Pan's Labyrinth? No, I love that movie. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a while, but I've watched it more than, you know, a handful of times. I, it's hard to watch, but I, it, it rides that line between something I, I never want to watch again because it's a little much and something that is just like really hits all the things I love. Uh, and I think it's just kind of a brave story. That, that's more magical realism, that movie. So it's not quite the same genre, but I, I really see the, the kind of inspiration in that because it, the way it uses fairy tale kind of storytelling to keep us going through what would otherwise be a truly devastating story of a young girl. <laughs> you know, it's it's another case of that. I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, I was at, obviously, I hadn't come across her uh, mentioning that movie, and it didn't spring to mind when I was watching The Breadwinner, but it's a great parallel. And I think that's like, I don't know what you would call that, but I guess that's a genre that I like a lot because I think that like a big part of story for human beings is just coping, (laughs) like coping with shit. And that's definitely something that comes up in the breadwinner. It's like people started telling stories to figure stuff out, to like educate each other, but also just because like the world is a terrible place and like we need to be able to process that in some way. And making up stories (laughs) 
is one of the ways that we do that. And so I think that's cool. And I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is a great example of exactly that. And yeah, the breadwinner is absolutely in that same sort of tradition. Yeah. So this, the story goes, according to some articles I read, Nora Toomey came upon this book, just, I don't know, on a whim. I don't even know if somebody even put it on her desk or whatever. But I, I think it was pretty quickly that she quickly decided she wanted to turn this into something. Because I think it, like you were just saying, like these types of stories we want to really tell, but it's just a matter of kind of like figuring out how. I think she brings a lot of like her own you know, agenda to this film, because when you compare the plots, like there, there's some like little differences in what she chooses to focus on and the, what the book focuses on in like some slight ways. But I, I think this book just became a great vessel for her to try to tell a story about like, you know, women and identity and just the sort of, like I was saying, like the mundanity of like oppression, like the world over specifically in, you know, workplaces like Afghanistan where it's like so much more dramatic. And she brought on uh, Angelina Jolie, who you'll know from the movie Hackers. I have never heard of her. That's not true, but I haven't seen Hackers, so... Okay. Well, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yes. Yes, I did see that one, so... Also, like, a, a noted film producer, but... Um, so I think she she's a lot of the force behind getting this thing done, because this is just not a type of story that... Really, especially with the animation. I mean, like, there's so many people involved in like this creative process. You you probably need a lot of money <laughs> to get a feature length picture done, right? And uh, so you need like an Angelina Jolie to to back you. And I thought it was funny. The other, not funny. I thought it was cool. The other producer is uh, one of the producers for Thelma and Louise, which is a movie. I adore. Sorry, I keep just dropping all these movies you haven't seen. I know, and that you're just like shaming me in front of everyone because it's all these like classic movies that I should have seen by now and just haven't. I'm doing my best. Okay, there's so many. There's so many of them out there. The only reason I bring these up because it, it, you can just kind of see this formula coming together of like a, a great book, a couple like ambitious women producers, and you know, an animation director who like wants to tell a story like this. And it you know, it's just the, the kind of setup for the production. Can we talk about Nora Toomey for a second, too? Because I found one interview from her, and she's now basically my personal hero. And if you're listening to this, you're so cool. And I really appreciate you. Yeah, So same. I found this article uh, in The Guardian that was like an interview with uh, Nora Toomey, I guess around um, May of 2018, so kind of tying into when The Breadwinner was released. Um, first of all, she's 46. I, I don't like to make a big deal of age, whatever. It's just like one, like female filmmaker, like movie director, like 46 years old. I want to be you. You're so cool. I'm sorry if you are listening, actually. This is like really over the top. Um, I just think you're really awesome. She just talked about so much cool stuff in this article. I was like, what is happening? Uh, like, one of the things that she said in here that really blew my mind is that, like, after she left school, she worked in a factory, like, at a factory job where she was just, like, basically picking out, like, gross vegetables on a conveyor belt of, like, frozen veg like vegetable processing. And she was like, it was a 12-hour night shift. So I just had to entertain myself in my mind and, like, my... Like, just write stories, basically. 
And um, I was just like, holy shit. And there's this great quote in here that she's like, I would just make up stories and entertain myself with beginnings, middles, and ends in my head for those 12 hours. When I sit at an edit machine now, it's that same space that I enter. Well, yeah. And I was just like, that's so hardcore. Like, that's incredible. Like, it just, I don't know. There's something about that that just speaks to me very, I have never, let me be very clear, have never worked a job like that or like had a shift that long. Mm-hmm. But the, I, I think it was just kind of, you know, when an artist sees another artist and we're like, oh, I see you. Like, I see who you are because of that. And like all the times when I was like bored as a kid or all these things where you would just retreat into a total fantasy world just because you're like, I'm entertaining myself. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, like, yeah, I, I get that. Like, I don't exactly, but it just felt kind of powerfully resonant. She also talked about she had this like battle with cancer that I didn't, I just didn't know anything about her. I'm just like, what a powerful presence. Like, what an awesome person. And uh, and she, like, basically is recovered. But there's kind of just a question in this about that fight with cancer. And, you know, she's saying, like, I'm not under any illusions that it's gone. But, like, the doctors, you know, gave me time. And it gave me more time to, you know, to be with my family and more time to make films. And I'm really grateful for that. And I'm just like, this is, you're just like, how are you so cool? And like, nobody's talking about it. People are talking about it, obviously. I just can't believe, I'm filled with shame for not having seen this movie before, for not giving Nora any of her due credit in past movies. Because it's not, we spend too much time maybe talking about Tom Moore, who also seems really cool. And I like him a lot. And I like a lot of his stees. Um, But just, you know, the other people who are involved, like Ross Stewart, who has been, Maybe a co-director on past stuff. I'm pretty sure Nora Toomey was a co-director on Song of the Sea. Yeah, uh, well, Secret of Kells, I think she's like listed as co-director. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just thought it was like it was exciting to read this article and just be like, what a force to be reckoned with. I'm really excited to know about her and really excited to pay a lot closer attention to the stuff that she's working on from now on. Um, yeah. In the same article, which is kind of a tangent from the Nora Toomey celebration station, we're now pulling away from that slightly a little bit. No, I have I have some too. We're staying. Oh, do you? Okay. Okay. Well, you go because I the other stuff that I have in this article to talk about, maybe I'll bring up later. First, just to, to, to something for you to get jazzed about. I came across a quick little fact that She's working on a new movie with the screenwriter of Inside Out and Captain Marvel. So I don't know what that adds up to. Um, Damn. Is it the My Father's Dragon? Because there's a lot of yeah, aspects actually, of that, I, that I'm... Yeah, I think it might be. It didn't say specific because I think the article was older, but that's that's her like next, next feature coming out, right? So I assume it's that. That sounds awesome. Okay. I was going to... I wasn't going to mention this part, actually, but now that you're mentioning it, there's a question at the bottom of this article that she talks about the My Father's Dragon thing. And all she says is, it's based on a book that's over 50 years old by Ruth Stiles Gannett about a young boy who argues with his mom and he goes on this adventure. <laughs> and I was like, this sounds amazing. And her like last thing is just, uh, you're not quite sure if it's real or not, but he meets a best friend and his best friend happens to be a dragon. And I was like, this, was, this is for me. So, and if you're, if what you're saying is true, all of that sounds good. I actually watched Captain Marvel for the first time, like two days ago, and I liked it so much more than I thought I would. 
People really had beef with that movie. I was like, this movie is fun. Y'all are haters. Whatever. Everybody has beef with a movie that has a woman as the lead character. I mean... <laughs> I know. People really had spice for her. I'm like, I think she's cool. I don't care. Y'all can take a hike. I like those I like those directors that made the film a lot. And I love uh, Brie Larson, who they've worked with before in a short, uh, short term 12, which is a good movie, oh, I too. I know that. Yeah. That's like their indie movie before they uh, hopped up to the majors, as they say when talking about film. <laughs> you know how they do that. <laughs> okay, back on Nora a little bit. So something we got into a little last week that we can um, talk about any chance we get is the difference between American production studios and like European production studios and where American studios are forced to like lean so far into entertainment. Sometimes stuff is just clearly aesthetic. Can I just interrupt you really quickly to only say really fast that this is like literally what I was going to pivot to you exactly. So it's just very serendipitous that you are doing it now. Oh, good. We're, go we're going there together. <laughs> I was like, holy shit. Okay. We're of one mind. Please go on. So, you know, of course there's great artists in America, but like overall, the money pushes you towards these certain things. And where the money comes from in Europe is very different. And you listen to Nora Toomey talk about her work and she has the freedom to open up to like collaboration and bringing in other stories and stories that are not necessarily tied to an IP that's going to work really well. And I, I mean, little things like, you know, I'm trying to watch some of these new Marvel shows. I'm watching WandaVision and there's all these opportunities for like interesting character journeys, but you just know they're completely vapid because the only agenda is to tie it all together in this magic trick of like what's coming next. But over across the pond, as they say, <laughs> you have people like Nora Toomey who are like, I'm going to make one story. It's going to be really good. And I'm going to work with all kinds of interesting people. And I'm going to like boost voices and do all this stuff because the money is already there. And I'm just going to make it. And I'm going to maybe try to win an award and do something else cool. But I'm not going to like tie myself to something just to get something done in the way like America has to with everything. It's just kind of a drag that things can't get. We can't have movies. Not that this movie is like that popular. It's popular to us because we're talking about it this week. And hopefully it inspires more people to watch it if they're listening to this and have not watched the movie. <laughs> but you should do it now. <laughs> it would just be nice to see like some more interesting voices like hers popping up in like American animated conversation. Well, yeah, and the, that's a big bummer because today as we're recording it, we found out, well, I don't know if you found out yet. Probably, though. I mean, it's all over Twitter right now, but Blue Sky Studios is closed. Disney had bought it uh, with this like Fox or like 20th Century Fox merger slash annihilation situation that happened. But they just shut down that whole studio. And so 450 people are out of oh, jobs. God. And that's an entire studio. And like, I won't pretend that I was a huge fan of Blue Sky's output. But I mean, I don't think I was the target audience. So, you know, if you don't know, it's like I, the Ice Age movies is Blue Sky. I think they did Rio, mm -hmm. stuff like that. They did do the Peanuts movie, the CG Peanuts movie, which I thought was, if nothing else, was like pretty cool in terms of its animation. And it seemed cute. So... That's a big bummer. And it does, it just feels like as much as we love, you know, like the Disney 
all of the stuff that Disney has done over the years, like, it's not a great feeling to be like, everything in America is slowly becoming the Disney show with all of that, like, all that that entails. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a little depressing. I'm not going to lie. And so it's funny because I was... I still crave more information about like the funding of Cartoon Saloon and like where, you know, how all that works. I'm curious about it. Uh, but I, in the same Guardian article, uh, Nora Toomey just says, you know, we're not beholden to shareholders. We're not trying to push merchandise. And that means we can tell stories that are a little bit different. And I love that. I think that's so cool. And to me, it makes perfect sense. Like you don't make a movie like Secret of Kells because you're trying to make money in a like an American audience like somebody just cared about that story that's it they wanted to tell an Irish story about an like an Irish thing in an Irish place and the history and all of that and even Song of the Sea it's the same thing like it's it's the kind of stuff I would probably make I mean you know whatever form that would take if somebody was like hey here's like eight million dollars like make a movie I'm not gonna make Toy Story hopefully I'd make something that was as emotionally resonant (laughs) as Toy Story you know, but that's not the movie that I'm going to make. I'm going to make something really weird and personal, probably. And I would be proud of that fact and be amazing. And it's, it is a shame that more people don't have that opportunity, don't have access to that. And it's something that just like every day, I feel like I like Cartoon Saloon a little bit more because they can do that. And it's just not something you see very often. I wonder how much that affects how we've looked back at, for example, Pixar's output over the 20 years. I don't know how much of it is that we're getting older or how much the studio is getting older. But it's just, you know, the more that time goes by, the more I see their new movies and I can like feel the the workshopping that goes into it to be, you know make this funnier, like make this like this for this target audience or like the character has to behave this way because of whatever. And it's like, that it does. It's kind of a drag. Yeah. The punching up. And I mean, I think that's how we started this whole series was just talking about the Pixar emotional brand, which is not so much tied to any artistic voice as it is just a formula generated by a studio system to give you something you expect. And part of that is like the authenticity of like a sad feeling, which sometimes can be real in the movies we love the most, but also is a bit of like an agenda. Like this movie... I also think the authenticity of a sad feeling is the name of a Nine Inch Nails. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're going to talk about Trent Reznor again. Feels pretty Trent reznor to me. (laughs) It's true. Okay, so here's another uh, Nora Toomey quote. I mean, we're just all about like talking, talking to kids in better ways. Seems to be something we like to bring up a lot. So this quote is exactly that. So Nora Toomey says, so if there's anything she wants, I'm kind of paraphrasing here just to shorten it. She says, if there's anything I wish that could be taken from this film is that it starts a conversation. It informs in some way, especially to young people, and it starts kids thinking about other kids in different parts of the world so they don't just go to the easy answers and sound bites that they form their own opinions based on research. I know these things are dying away. I know like nobody wants to go to a fucking library or no one wants like to to find the facts because like it's better to... What is a library? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to sound like an old person here, but I just, I love like statements like this where even if she came up with this after the fact that she made the movie and she's like, well, I should say things like this to kind of spur it on. It's still 
is truthful, I think. Like, I think she really does want people to think about what it's like to grow up somewhere else. Like, there's all these tiny beats in this movie that we, we can get into that I love that don't exist in other types of animated features of, like, sisters interacting in kind of, like, ways that aren't necessarily cartoon appealing. Like, they're just real ways that sisters interact. Yeah, all right. One last little thing on production that I thought was interesting. So when I was looking through a lot of the, just the general critical response from like casual viewers on Letterboxd, not like official critics or anything, everybody always wants to start by being like, be careful, this movie is going to mess you up or don't like show it to little kids at this age. And I think that stuff is all valid. But, and I honestly was a little like nervous watching this movie. Like we're all a little sensitive this year and I don't know, I, some of us are just sensitive in general, maybe. But I was I was a little nervous to dig into this movie just because I was like, this movie is going to go places that you're not going to expect the cartoon to go. And it kind of does, but not to the point where I was like blown away or like devastated. But I thought it was interesting that Nora Toomey was taking this to early screenings for kids and adults. And she says that after the film... The kids were chatting, smiling, and talking, and the adults were red-eyed and traumatized. The kids take their cue from Parvana, and they follow her point of view, which is super interesting because, like, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like, when you think back to stories you loved as a kid, like, you really latch on to the kid characters. And for Parvana, some of the horrors of this world are not quite registering with her. Um, we can get more into that when we talk about the story. But I, I thought that was interesting just to kind of point out what adults are getting from this and what kids are. Yeah, that is interesting. I don't know, because I sort of felt that now watching it as an adult where like I was certainly like emotionally affected by this movie. Um, I don't know if any animated movie at this point could like get me that like, I never expected to see this in a cartoon. Like, I think that ship has sailed for us both. Yeah. A long time ago. Um. I guess I can understand Amer like Americans, adults being a little startled by it, especially American adults, you know, not prepared. But it doesn't ever surprise me that kid. Honestly, I find it very confusing when parents don't want their kids to see stuff like this or or like really violent. I don't know. Maybe it's because I was watching violent movies from like a young age, but like it meant it doesn't mean anything. And not in a way where I'm like, well, I don't get it. Or it's like going over my head. But I think when you talk about that stuff to kids, they're like, ah, oh, yes, this is part of the texture of my world. Or maybe it's scary, whatever. I mean, I had a lot of night terrors as a kid. Like I was very, and I remember when Jurassic Park 2 came out because I was too young. Like I was a baby basically when the first Jurassic Park came out. But when Jurassic Park Two came out they did not let me see it in theaters because they knew that I wouldn't be able to tell that it wasn't real because I was probably like five or six or something I think like six and they were totally right they shouldn't have taken me to that because they knew I would be really scared but for example like I saw Princess Mononoke for the first time when I was in like fourth grade and I mean the amount of blood you see on screen in that movie is really ridiculous like people are getting their arms severed left and right did that freak me out no like did I feel super like I knew what I was getting into and that's a fiction. And like, I guess maybe there's another layer on that where this feels really real. Like the adults in the audience know that this stuff has really happened to kids across the world. And so they're like, don't, you know, introduce like, you know, my child to this stuff, whatever. Like, and I'm, 
I don't know. I just like, how is that helpful to literally anyone? You're you're doing more harm in the long term by pretending to your kids that that stuff doesn't exist. Then you're just like setting them for, up for a nasty shock when they get to a certain age and they have to find out all of this stuff. I'm sure a lot of people in like the American education system have experienced that where you like get into college and you're like, what racist stuff happened in the town I grew up in that nobody talked about ever until I left that town? <laughs> like that kind of a thing. It's just that that's not good. So you should show these for kids. Like stuff like this is for kids and kids can handle it. Yeah. And some of, you know, when we were looking at the book a little bit, this movie is gearing it towards a younger audience. I, I feel like the book is more of a a young adult book, which leans like more towards early teen. And this one's probably sitting more in a middle grade audience because they strip out some things. Like I, I'm pretty sure in the book, like hands are cut off in the book. And there's a little more complexity in the mom's narrative. I think she joins like a, a rebel group or something like that. So there's there's like more threads of subplot. And this one just follows the kid character which is smart. And in general, you know, like you need to whittle something down for a movie, but I think it's really intentionally trying to lean towards a, a younger audience and help them help kids get introduced to a story like this at a younger age. Cause even book wise, you're probably not going to find like a middle grade book that's going to talk about this sort of thing. And your attention is just going to be more drawn to an animated film than it is a book anyway. So I think it's a, a nice effort to, yeah, like speak to kids with this story. Okay, so the, some some things I was just kind of like really appreciating thematically in this movie is I, I love movies that or stories that kind of focus on like the naming of something, like finding that. I don't know if that's like a never ending story thing from my childhood or something where where <laughs> probably <laughs> you have to like name name the girl to save the universe. It, there, there's a lot of names being called out in this movie, and there's also a lot of like identity complexities going on with this. So I just thought that was kind of cool. There's a couple little quotes that, you know, that the dad is sort of like the, the wise old wizard of this tale points out that kind of run through the cartoon saloon catalog and through their DNA, this idea that stories remain our, so like the dad says, stories remain in our hearts when everything else is gone. Feeling that. And then he also says this other thing, which are stories remind us of everything that changes. I, I almost wish he picked one of those two things and focused on that because to me, those are two different ideas. Uh, I like the idea that stories remind us that things change because I think that's something about storytelling that doesn't come up as much. The like difference between when you're telling the story and when the story was theoretically taking place and what that means to go through time. It's interesting to me that you say that those are two different ideas, because I don't think that I agree with that. Although I don't remember. Do you remember at what point in the movie? I remember when he says that stories remain in our hearts when all else is gone, but I don't remember him saying the second line. The stories also remind us that everything changes. Do you remember when that comes up? I'm pretty sure he says it right in the beginning. So at the beginning of the movie, he's telling a couple different stories. He's trying to get his daughter to, uh, you know, like tell some history and like, they're having like a little lesson as they sit on the street in their little pop-up shop. And I think after he completes his story about the uh, kind of like the nomadic origins of their people, 
he kind of points out that stories remind us that everything changes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they definitely fit together. I just thought it was interesting that he's making two kind of statements about storytelling. And they're all kind of like jammed in this one beginning scene. Yeah, I think it's just because like at first I remember kind of being a little thrown off. And I mentioned to you in an email or something that it took me a bit to actually get into the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if it would, you know, on a rewatch how I would feel about that. I just, you know, it took me maybe like 20 minutes, like a half an hour to like really just be lost in it. Uh, And opening with that sort of that classic cartoon saloon. Like, we're going to kick this off with the little story thing at the beginning. It like it just kind of threw me off a little bit. I think I was just taking it all in. Like, I'm processing and everything clicks. But it does. It is a pretty good setup for the rest of the movie thematically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like it because, to me, both of those statements are just getting at the idea that stories, they kind of contain a world in them. Because like, like culturally, they're so important because they're like stories are like who we are as a people. And they're like our stories are the past of what we've done or, you know, what we value and all of these things. But I like also it's a little dark to think like stories also remind us that everything changes because it's also basically like a memory store of wherever that story came from. And so even if we're still telling it and we still value that thing, like whatever the story is about, you might have the story and look around and realize, you know, everything now is totally different. And so we use it to remember as well. It's just an interesting I feel like we could go on and on about that uh, because it's so much like everything this podcast is about, (laughs) essentially. Yeah, I think it. Uh, just you saying that makes me think of something you said last week about how Song of the Sea is about kind of the last gasp of this fairy world existing, and how this story is finally being like severed from the reality we know as like cities encroach on the natural environment, and there's these like last little outposts of of fairies that are like all turned to stone. You know, there's barely anything left. This story it seems to be more even further ahead in time where everything is just sort of like a human wasteland in there. It's all that's left is like the the last grasp of some of these stories. And you just have to like hold them so dear because someone's going to take them from you if you don't. And it, it might be like the only thing you have of value because it's just kind of like this cultural, like, they, I mean, they're like literally in the desert, right? It's like, there's, <laughs> Uh, we've come all the way from like Secret of Kells, like a, a world of lush green to like a desert landscape. And it's not like that's necessarily a bad thing, but it is a world that we're kind of told like has lost a lot of its stories because it's like ravaged by war. So, it, I mean, the stakes are higher if we're talking about, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. It's like, oh, wow. Okay, here we go. Now it's in actual. Now we're interested in wartime. <laughs> Quick recap of the plot because we're trying something new this week. Uh, Just a little bit of a different approach talking through it. So we're going to start things off by just doing a quick run through. Uh, If you haven't seen this movie in a while, uh, in a nutshell, this movie is about Parvana. She's an 11-year-old girl living in Kabul under the Taliban's rule, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Uh, She's got a family. She has her dad who has educated her, which I believe was illegal at the time to do to uh, educate women 
and she has a mom and a sister and a really younger brother at home. So she and her father make ends meet by hawking wares on the street. They've got the, you know, the cloth with all the goods laid out on it and they sell at the market every day. Uh, And the movie starts off with the dad being arrested for basically being uppity to the Taliban and he is taken away, leaving Parvana and her family in this predicament where because there are no men of age in the family and the son is very young, like like a toddler, like practically preverbal, they have no way to get money or to do any kind of work, to buy food, even with the money that they do have. So they're in a real predicament. So because of this, Parvana disguises herself as a boy so that she can start going out and fetching water and buying food for her family to live. And then eventually she meets an old classmate who uh, is also a girl who has adopted this same scheme where both of them are dressed as boys and they, they're going out and basically doing hard labor in a lot of instances to keep their families alive. So the movie centers a lot about their relationship and what they're doing, how Parvana is trying to help her family. She goes to the prison frequently throughout the movie, trying to find her dad, trying to find some way to free him, um, saving up money to try to bribe the guards. And uh, all of this kind of culminates in a family reunion by the end of the movie uh, that is bittersweet to say the least. Uh, And throughout all of this, Carvana is telling a story to various characters throughout the movie. And it actually begins sort of with her father telling her a story. Uh, and we see this in the way that it's it's conveyed in this alternate animation style that's like cut paper in this like shadow puppet style. It's really beautiful. And she's telling the story to her family. She's telling it to her friend as the movie goes on. And eventually by the end, she's telling it to herself. And it's both paralleling Parvana's journey, her own story. And it's also really telling another story to the audience about what these characters are like, what the people living here have gone through or are going through. So with that kind of basic framework of the story out there, I think it would be really cool uh, if we what we did now was talk about, I guess, the things that we liked about this movie, maybe things that we didn't like about this movie uh, I have some ideas here, ready to go. I don't know about you, Ira. Do you want to kick us off with any particular thoughts? Well, I always think really, I, I get really invested in the opening of an animated film because just, you know, overall, there's so much fine tuning being done to all of these stories before they get anywhere close to the screen. So to me, it means so much by what they show us when these movies first open. And I love the uh, the kind of maturing of the cartoon saloon aesthetic here, where we're getting a little glimpse of this, the, these two different worlds of animation style. And actually, I think it's a different studio that they worked with to develop this paper cut technique. I'm not sure if you dug into that at all. Yeah, I couldn't remember I believe what they you're were correct. called, but I think they- It's something I noticed. Oh, sorry. Um... I had noticed that like Cartoon Saloon appears to be very collaborative. Like a lot of their movies are like, it's like a French, like Irish collaboration or like a few different countries working together. So I have always wondered in the past, actually, if there is any of that going on in their other movies. But this is the first one where I was like, oh, yeah, you know, there's 
there's clearly some interstudio collaboration going on here. And you get a quick little glimpse of it before we just cut right to the garment that Parvana and her father are selling. And I went back and watched some of these scenes again because I, I've only seen this movie once all the way through. And there was like a couple little things I wanted to catch early on and see how they kind of tied to later moments in the movie. And we've got this big theme here of, you know, like the identity of women, especially in like these cultures, like the, the, this time and place in Afghanistan and what it means to try to just get through the day as a woman. And I just love the, the type of character Parvana is she's, She's a different type of kid and you see it right away with like her eye contact. Like she's not, she has bright, innocent, young eyes, like eyes that are engaging, but she doesn't make eye contact with anybody. And it like right off the bat, it just says so much about where this character is. And she's got this garment that she's never been able to wear. Like her father sort of just off, you know, dismissively says, when would you wear it anyway? And that's, it's just all so sad, right? In these opening moments and they're, they're sitting on the ground. They have barely anything to sell. And I mean, talk about putting a character at, at their lowest point, like right off the bat. Uh, it's just really brave. And I love the way their style has developed as a studio, like the, the character designs in this, they're, they're kind of simple, but they work really well for me. I find the cases or I find the faces very engaging, especially when we get like good, strong close-ups of all these characters. It's just a lot more uh, cinematic and like kind of a traditional way than some of their other stuff. So yeah, I, I just love the the introduction of Parvana here in these opening bits. Yeah, she's a great character. And that's something that I wanted to talk about specifically. That was one of my well picks here, as it were, is that... I don't even know where to begin exactly. I just, I found her really compelling. And maybe we're just gonna have to talk through it right now live on air because I don't know exactly why. I mean, there's a couple obvious reasons like, uh, obviously I'm going to be invested in like a brave young girl character. And that was a common thread in a lot of the fiction that I grew up loving, like especially a lot of the books. I mean, it was more magical shit like Sabriel or whatever, where it's like a young girl who's, you know, fighting monsters or whatever. But I mean, yeah, that's, you know, important to me to see. And also maybe just relatable, you know, in a, not that I've been in this situation at all, but just that it's easy to put yourself into those shoes and like feel the feelings of like, you know, you know, how would I feel in this situation? Like, how would I have reacted? Uh, and trying to imagine functioning in any of these situations that she finds herself in. Uh, I don't know. It made me feel genuinely scared at parts when she's in danger in ways that we've talked about this in past cartoon saloon movies too, where we're, you know, for Song of the Sea, we were talking about these moments of danger, not really feeling that scary because you sort of know the, the story you're watching and not feeling that, like, no one's going to die. You're pretty sure watching Song of the Sea that no one is really about to die. And uh, that's how I, I don't feel when this movie is like she's getting chased by like human adults. Sometimes in one instance, at least like with a gun. And I like that was shocking to me a little bit, you know, not in the way we were talking about earlier. Not like, wow, I never thought I'd see this in a cartoon. It's more just like your life is in danger. Actually, like I actually feel like this is a legitimately threatening thing that's happening. And just seeing that all like through the eyes of her as a character, 
And it really got me. And as I mentioned earlier, it did take me a while to kind of get into the flow of it. And I think that was just because I'm not used to watching movies that are like this, like animated movies tackling this kind of subject matter. I don't even usually watch a lot of fiction that's sort of grounded in the real world. Like a lot of the stuff I watch is more fantastical or like sci-fi and that kind of thing. So maybe it was some of that. Um, But I found her pretty easy to connect with at a certain point. Her friendship with Shazia is very real feeling to me. I just think she's a really good example of a character that you could actually get invested in. Especially, I'm curious how you think in contrast of the the cartoon saloon protagonists we've seen in the other movies where we both sort of didn't feel like as... We're not just clicking exactly on like an intimate level with them. Yeah, well, well, in, in general, first of all, I, I'll watch a lot of dark fiction and historical fiction. I love, I watch a lot of documentaries too. Like I, I'm pretty hardened to intense storytelling, uh, even with horror movies. I mean, there's some places I won't go. Like I don't like um, really violent horror movies that are just kind of trying to- Not a big Saw fan. Get you revved up by like how- like yeah, like body horror stuff. That that's like kind of the one place I won't go because I don't really get a lot out of that. And God bless you if you do. That that's for you. But you know, I'll watch a lot of kind of stories about young kids in dramatic danger. I think Guillermo del Toro, his movies are at the edge of that. They're like magical realism. But a lot of the influences of his work come from more real, like uh, you know, stories of like the Spanish war, like set in the 1940s, these kind of dark kids stories, these like allegories that are also like really dark because the kids are caught up in like the drug trade or whatever. So I'm not uh, averse to this sort of storytelling at all. I think there's a, a bigger investment in Parvana in this movie than a lot of those stories because we spend so much time just looking at her. And I, I saw this neat little antidote the other day about early Disney cartoons and the introduction of Pluto as a character. And they were trying to figure out his character design. And when it really popped for audiences was when they first did like maybe what might be one of the first Disney close-ups. And I'm like, yeah, that is actually a really big deal because early cartoons don't do that as much. They, they, it took them a while to figure out how to do a face up close. And I feel like this movie does a really gr- great job of letting you just watch how Parvana is internalizing everything. And to me, that's what connects me to her is just really trying to figure out what she's thinking. It's like I'm engaging with her in a different way than a character who's very outward, like the boy in Song of the Sea, Ben. He's just all on the surface. I mean, there's layers below him that are revealed later, but right off the bat, he's like very external with his like anger and frustration and things like that. And I don't connect to that as well as I do with a character that's quietly working through stuff. Uh, and maybe that's like the same thing for you. Maybe we just kind of operate more in these eternal spaces. I think that's a great point. And I also think there's probably something to be said with like, I think maybe I could relate to Ben in certain contexts. Like, if I was a kid and my parents had gotten divorced or something like that. Like, a situation where you feel that angst, I think you could relate. But it's also not the same because it's just not the same kind of problem. Like, Yeah, true. It doesn't demand as much of you to to feel those feelings and be drawn in by it. So with, with a character like Ben, you might look at him and be like, oh, I understand why he's mad. Like, I understand why he's feeling angry 
or sad. And in this one, it's like, you don't really understand, but you can, because not, <laughs> we have not been in these situations, but you're, you're le- like, you're learning stuff. You're experiencing things as the character's experiencing them. And you are seeing her process it. And there is more, because of the nature of the story, there's a little more to the emotional aspect of it. And I also like, too, that this movie doesn't explain that, really. You mentioned earlier, I hope this isn't too much of a pivot, but you mentioned earlier about the sister, like how they make the sisterly interactions feel really real. And it's just like not something that you see in a lot of movies. But it reminded me of that because the sister character, she's quite a bit older. I don't know exactly, but I would say like teens, like mid-teens at least to Barvana's 11 years old. And um, she's kind of like, they don't, they nitpick at each other, sort of, and they don't really get along, which does feel very sisterly. But at the same time, as this movie goes on, you realize that the sister might be, be like behaving in that way because she also has things that she's facing that she needs to struggle through that she doesn't want to do, but that she feels forced to do for the family. So she's promised in marriage to this guy that she doesn't know. And they're about to move to this other city to do it. And that's like halfway or like 75% of the way through the movie. And they don't talk about any of this. They don't talk about the emotional state of the sister, but like it's very obvious from the film and the world that they're in that this is not a good thing. It's not like You're basically going to live with a stranger, selling your entire personhood to that person who you don't know in a society where the men are kind of terrifying uh, and they have full control over you. And it's purely to survive. Like, it's not necessarily something that they would be doing if they had any kind of autonomy. And so it humanizes the sister to me to realize, like, She's she gets upset with Parvana, not just because they're having these like sisterly squabbles, but because she's trying in her own way as well to keep the family together, to keep everybody alive and safe. And one of the things I like most about that is that they never say that. Nobody ever says in this like on camera, I have to do sacrifices too to keep the family safe, which is very much like a Disney thing to me, like an American movie thing. But it's just something that makes it feel so real because I was able to kind of intuit that just by observing and like living in this world and engaging with the movie and nobody needed to beat me over the head with that information. And then it made it all the sadder when I realized that. Like obviously they all love each other and are trying their best. Yeah, and then to add the the third point of view that's probably um, in the hierarchy here is the mother. And again, in the book, like she gets a lot more story and it's like these three women were kind of seeing different stages of engaging with this type of oppressive society, like from Parvana, it's like kind of, she's in it. Like it's, it is her life. It's familiar, but also she is given this other interesting option when she cuts her hair and she's allowed to like play the boy character. That's something her mom and her sister never got according to this story so her sister's kind of on this journey where she's looking to her future and her marriage and what that means for her and then the mother is like even further along in the journey and she's just kind of exhausted in some ways like she's willing to put herself in danger to just kind of confront some of this to the best of her ability as being someone who has like really no power in the society she's still kind of brave and and has some 
she has like the moments where you can see, oh, this is where people are talking about tearing up or like getting a little traumatized by this movie. It, it's the moments with the mother because she's she's beaten like off screen, which is re- handled really well, but also like still very intense, partly because you're like not seeing it. And then she retains those bruises for like half the movie, at least until they start to fade. And it's just time, you know, like they don't go away right away. There's like a real investment in like the repercussions of that moment for her. And it kind of shuts her down for part of the movie. So it, it's just, uh, I think it's really great to to give the older characters a lot more of a story in this otherwise, you know, kind of like kids movie as in a, a movie about a kid. Well, yeah, all the characters, I I feel like get that humanizing treatment. Even this Idris is the name of this guy, this Taliban guy. is like a young, angry man uh, mm-hmm. who is essentially from the start of the movie, he's the guy that he gets into this confrontation with Parvana and her dad at the market and he's being threatening and he's being scary. And then he, you know, basically calls the Taliban on him, drags him away to prison. Like he is the reason that Parvana's family is in this mess. And he shows up a few times and he's legitimately really scary when he does. And he doesn't yeah, he's do terrifying. that much generally because he's not given the chance. Like a lot of the time, you know, Parvana sees him coming and she's running. And even in that moment, he it's scary. And he's very angry. And it's just, I don't know, it feels very real to me in these moments. But one of the most notable points of this movie to me, it was really like impacted me in the moment that I saw it, is when Parvana and her friend are working in this like clay field. They're like digging up this clay, I guess, to be fired into bricks. They talk about doing this to make money. And Idris is there. And... He's mocking them for being weak and all of this stuff and not realizing who it is. And then when he gets a close-up look at Parvana, he's like, oh, I recognize you, which is absolutely terrifying. She hits him in the head with a brick and flees, which again is like kind of a shocking thing. I can asp- it, it, I didn't feel this way when I was watching it, but I, the more I'm talking about it, the more I'm like, yeah, no wonder adults were like freaked out by this. Because even as a kid, I don't think that would have like – stuck out to me as much but talking about it out loud i'm like it's pretty wild to see a a child character strike a human with a brick in the head to survive (laughs) it's just not something you see a lot in you know in in a cartoon movie yeah uh and so she's running away and this is the point that he's chasing her with a gun probably going to kill her if given the opportunity and uh she and shazia manage to escape and they climb into this um, I guess it would be like a collapsed home because they climb through this tunnel and that looks like it's in a cliffside and like in this cave, you know, there's like tiled ceilings and all of this stuff and they're hiding in there from him. And uh, he gets pulled away because him and his, his buddies roll in with a truck and they're like, hey, by the way, the war is starting. So we're going like you need to get your ass up here like we're going to war. Mm-hmm. And he climbs up from the cliff and he gets in this truck and uh he looks absolutely terrified. It's like a split second of animation. Yeah. But he's going from like being this absolutely terrifying, like foaming at the mouth, like going to murder this child on screen with a, like with an automated weapon. 
to being in the back of the truck with all these men. And uh, and he, you can see the fear of God in his eyes, like legitimately. It's kind of an amazing moment from a design standpoint and from a storytelling standpoint. And it was so wild because in that moment, I felt for him. And I was just like, holy shit. That I'm so impressed by that because he was so transparently like, quote unquote, evil in the moment before that. Just this like force of nature that is like, I'm going to kill this child, like absolutely terrifying. And you're like in Parvana's head in that moment. And then in this like five seconds of on-screen moment when he's being shipped off to war and you feel like he's probably going to die. And it just like you were saying about the bicycle thief – and then you know how the dad ends up trying to steal a bicycle and you're like, it just kind of goes to show you like animation is a great way to tell these stories where like you don't always have all the information and you don't know why people behave the way they do. Obviously, I don't think any of that would like excuse the behavior of this Idris character. But boy, did I feel like I saw this human dimensionality to that character in that moment that was really striking. Yeah. And the dad, one of my favorite parts of the movie is the story he's telling at the beginning in the style that we get later for the elephant king and um you know the little fable that kind of like runs through and ties a lot of the movie together and it's a bit of like escapism for the characters but also like a coming to terms with you know the the brother the other brother who we haven't talked about yet but at the beginning the father really puts all of this into context he has like this great little line about first of all he says this great thing that we are a land whose people are our greatest treasure, which is like to say that, you know, we're we're here in a desert and we're we're like the diamonds in the rough. We're like the thing that makes this place worth being, which is to say, you know, like we're all connected. We're all like this family. So I think that's a really nice way to set it up. And then he says, which is great to say, is that we are living at the edges of empires at war with each other, which is you're reminded of that constantly through this movie. Like you see it as soon as you see Idris is taken away and like that flash in his eyes of like, oh, I'm about to be taken to a place where I have no control here in my little like kingdom of this neighborhood. I run the show and I'm empowered by this Taliban agenda. But outside of that, we're really at the whim of these giant empires fighting and flying overhead in these like loud, noisy jets and like blowing up things on the other side of the mountains. Like there's a greater evil at play than just these people with guns running around. And, you know, and it, it just, it just points out like the, the, that there's like these bigger things happening outside of like the evils of like any individual act that who knows if they can ever be like undone. Like all, all the villains in this story are at the whim of the bigger war that that's like going on to this day. I mean, this story set in 2000, like the, the, this like struggle still exists and it's just a drag. And I, I like that um, Nora Toomey doesn't really let you forget that with all these characters, like nothing's really over by the end of this movie. It's just learning to live like within, within this struggle and this. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just funny. Like as you're talking, I feel like I'm just reliving it. And honestly, like, I don't know, I'm going to have to rewatch this movie again because I feel like I just, I processed a lot of it and I, I need, I'm ready for that revisit to really get to how I feel about it. And I feel like I really liked this movie a lot more than I even felt at the time watching it. Yeah. I think that's the cartoon saloon vibe. It's like, there's, there's just layers to unpeel in all this. There's so much research and investment 
and uh, like empathy towards like the characters and the times and places where they exist that, you know, it, it feels good to, you know, get to go back and watch them. Cause even just watching a couple of the scenes again, I was just pulling out some little terms and dialogue that was just being thrown out. Like the father says something about, he says it right at the end as he, as per Parvana, as Parvana is saving him from the encampment, like the prison that he's in, she's taking him out and they've been reunited in the, the bittersweet way that you mentioned earlier. And he says, we are Ariana, which is like this old Parisian, this old like Latin or Parisian word that means like the land of Aryans. And back in the day, I guess Aryan was like kind of a religious or a, a cultural idea, like an Indo-Iranian people um, word. So he's, what am I getting at with this? Like that's, that's a little layer and that's like some, you know, research that I hadn't really thought about. And it just kind of like contextualizes Afghanistan and Iran and Pakistan in ways that honestly, I never really thought about that much because the way they're presented in the news doesn't make me want to dig into a lot of this, (laughs) you know, like to be honest. I mean, I'm glad you said that because, and I think that's truly horrific, but it is true. And I, you made me think of that when you talked about the, the quote about people living on the edges of these empires and like the conflicts of these empires and how much of a disservice, it's not even a disservice, it's like basically criminal, how much like the American conception of, and maybe even the global conception of these these places and this world, there's such this attitude that like the Middle East, it's like less than, and it's these people are all, you know, it's something I definitely heard espoused frequently growing up in like the Midwest slash Southern state of Oklahoma and like people being like, just nas- the nastiest things about all kinds of like different people but like this distaste you know this justification of us not caring about these people because of like 9-11 and because of all these different things and we're just like propagandized to not care about them which is wild and like one of the things I really responded to in this movie is that there's so many moments that are just like these people are people like you can't we can't just sit around in America and in other places in the world and just think of them as like this is a place where there's a lot of fighting and it's so backwards because of like da 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 da. Like I also would hear sometimes people say things like like women in America complain too much because like feminism is stupid because like it could be like like look at the Middle East and like how they treat people and I'm like everything about what you said is dumb and wrong. And also like what are you talking about? And that's not, it's such a generalization. Like there's so many things wrong with ideas like that, but so much of it is like a complete unwillingness to engage with these parts of the world as like also just parts of the world where people live and people are not different. Like we are all the same. (laughs) Like we all have the same basic needs and we all are like emotional creatures who like want to survive. Like, There are scenes in this movie that on paper maybe wouldn't have any point in like a Western conception of storytelling where her and her friend like will keep sneaking into this candy factory and stealing like the pieces of candy that fall to the floor. I mean, obviously that shows you a lot about the characters in the state that they're in, but it's not like this isn't to move the plot forward. It's like 
this is who these people are. This is like their life. And like, not only that, but like they want candy. They like candy. She steals candy to bring home to her like kid brother. Stuff like that that you wouldn't expect to see necessarily, but I find so valuable. Like they're just, can we just give a minute <laughs> like to to learn, to like meet these people like and learn who they are? And I think that's so great that this movie does that. Yeah, it's true. It's important because like the the more of that stuff you strip out, the more you get like this two-dimensional archetype of a thing. And there an archetype is there there's no reason to consider it as like a a b- believable entity. It's just like a a piece of a puzzle that you're waiting to be solved. But when you add like these moments of like characters engaging like having dinner together, like the time it the, the time the movie spends on them, like eating little bits of rice and putting it to their mouths and like, you know, Parvana giving her sister a hard time about the mole on her face. Like kids are superficial, like give them a moment to have a, a an engagement like that because it's, it's just true. It's like, why shouldn't that be part of the story? And to skip over that stuff and to maybe just strip this down to the story of a girl who, you know, cloaks her identity and rises above and stands up to the military and she faces down weapons to rescue her father. Like there's another version of the story that sucks, you know, like that's not empathetic. That's just like a hero's journey. That's just about an icon of like women can do it too, or whatever, you know, they want to say with it. Like there, there could be that take on this story if, if you were to be like, um, you know, flippant with it, but our favorite director of all time, Nora Toomey, takes the time. New icon, new hero to me. <laughs> she she literally takes the time. And I think that's unfortunately going to be something that we're not going to see a lot of as we go through a lot of animation is taking the time for those moments because those are the things that end up on the cutting room floor when you're trying to push a plot forward, right? It's like, oh, we're not going to animate that because we have to get to the next like exciting scene. Yeah, I'm... I'm glad you specifically name-dropped Hero's Journey because I'm like, let's talk about the Hero's Journey. And, like, I know I've said that I don't really like the Hero's Journey. It's, like, that's not literally true. I just, like, I have problems with it. Like, I think it's very open to criticism. And a lot of it is because of exactly what you're saying, where, like, if we took a Hero's Journey approach to this, first of all, like, a Hero's Journey is inherently bullshit. It's, like, the epitome to me of people, like, oh, I'm like writing a fiction story. I'm lying to tell you the truth. And I'm like, not really though, because like so many things have to happen a certain way to follow this particular formula. But like my biggest problem with the hero's journey is that it's like, it's about me, the main character. And like, even though I struggle some at first, I turn out to be awesome. And like, maybe something crazy happens, like my hand gets cut off with a lightsaber or something, but like, mm, nothing really that devastating. And I come out on top. I'm morally correct, whatever, this stuff. And also, I genuinely think like, Americans, like a lot of people need to stop thinking about themselves as the hero of a story because you're not like we live in a society you know what I mean and like I hate that the way that we tell stories is always like it's actually about you and how you feel and about your journey and I'm like "Mm, is it though like and it's not like there's no room for that either because it there's so much room for that obviously and I'm not gonna it obviously makes for good storytelling it's just that we need to be open to more than that and like you can have these stories that are about a person and their growth, but like that are also about other things. 
And I think this movie is, I'm sure you could look at this movie and like kind of fit it into a hero's journey box if you wanted to. I haven't thought that through, so I don't know. But to me, that's not what this movie is really about. If you wanted to do that, like you could have Parvana like win the day at the end. Like I'm seeing this horrible vision in my mind of this movie filtered through that lens where she like stands up at the prison at the end and she like gives a big speech about how like this is wrong. Like, don't you see, you know, and people like either fall to her whims or the villain like makes one last like attack and then is struck down. You know, because that's another thing we do is, like, the hero can never shoot first. (laughs) Like, the hero always has to, like, put out the moral thing and the villain can reject it and die or be redeemed, whatever. We have these very rigid conceptions of how this should go. And that is not how this movie goes. I guess we can kind of talk about the ending if we sort of, like, flirted with it a little bit before. Uh, This bittersweet ending. So the the ending, just to backtrack a little bit, the ending is tied to, depending on what you mean exactly with the ending, like to me, the ending is tied with the story of the Elephant King, which we haven't really addressed. So to me that I think that I just came up with this. So I didn't, I didn't have this in my brain before, but as you were talking about kind of the place. I'm very impressed (laughs) with you. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was getting at. So like you were saying, there there is a place for the hero's journey. And I think we see that place in this movie because Parvana starts to tell her little brother the story of the Elephant King. And it's about this sort of boy who rises to the occasion and he like literally climbs the mountain to the evil. And it engrosses the little brother and it, it engages him and it like uh, fuels like his sense of wonder and it, it energizes him in a way that stories just do. And I guess that's in a way the the core power of these really archetypal stories. They just sort of boost our sense of self in a way, because maybe we can like live vicariously through this character who's a lot more free than us, but to believe that it's a truth is wrong and to like portray it as a true journey is ridiculous. But this movie says these stories are within reality. So don't forget that you, you know, there's, there is a normal world and these stories have a time and a place in our world and they can help you, but there's a bigger story that's more important. And that's like the truth of your journey. Um, so I think Parvana like wields the story of the hero in, in a great way in this movie. And I, I don't know, I think that's kind of just reflecting probably on the studio and the director thinking about how they use their layers of storytelling in more interesting ways, like through this series of films they're they're doing. Yes. I'm glad you brought up the Elephant King thing too, because I wasn't thinking about that as I was talking about this. But what is interesting to me about the Elephant's journey or Elephant King's story, and I'm curious what you think about this, because I actually I don't know exactly what to make of how that story ends, which is why I'm excited that we're talking about it, because this Elephant King story starts out in that really traditional mythological way. And it's like a village and there's this boy and the village is attacked by these jaguar monsters and they ruin all the crops and they steal a bag of like the seeds for next season's crops. So all the villagers are crying because they're going to starve because there's not going to be another harvest. And the boy is like, I'm going to go on this journey to get the seeds back. It's very much like a, 
you know, any like hero's journey, epic of Gilgamesh, whatever type story. It's like boy going on quest. And yeah. so we know exactly what's up. And uh, it's a really charming story, too. And there's a lot of like really cute ways that it's used in the movie. So as it goes on, he this boy meets this like old crone sort of character, which is also very much like out of the mythological, like the playbook. And she gives him this task where, oh, like you have this quest where you need to go defeat this elephant king. Well, you need these three items, you know, whatever they may be to be able to do that. So now you have your like sub journeys in the quest and we're all in the audience just being like, yep, like no mysteries here. Totally got it. Uh, the animation and all of this is really beautiful. I'll just say again. And it, there are little funny things in here too. I'm not going to spoil it, but a lot of good animation gags get into Oh, like the this. old horse? <laughs> yeah, like the old creaky horse at the butt. I loved that horse. Like, And I, I thought it was really funny. The woman, the old crone that gives him these tasks has three hands and it's not addressed yeah. in any way except visually <laughs> in this kind of humorous fashion. And I just love stuff like that. Um, but she gives him this mission to go find these three things. I think it's like one that reflects, one that ensnares, and one that soothes. I might be getting some of those keywords wrong, but something like that. And so he, he goes off and he's, you know, going to do these things, which he does with some humorous additions, like, for example, the old horse, which as a brief aside, I thought was really cute. That comes as an interjection where uh, Parvana is telling the story to her friend and her friend is like being a cut up and is like interjecting her own ideas into the story. And I was like, this is so cute. Like, it really feels like two friends, like a real moment between two friends. And like, like, I would totally do that as a kid with and they're just like having fun together but then it becomes part of the story and i was like oh this is such a lovely way to show like how stories develop and how it's like how interactive it actually is but anyway to skip to the end of that it culminates in this kind of devastating sequence i think where the boy uh who at this point in the story has officially become a parallel to parvana's older brother who was never a part of this movie he has been dead the whole time as this character uh it's not clear exactly how much older i do think the family would not be in dire straits if he were still around though like you get the impression that he was maybe young teens at least something like that yeah um or closer maybe 11 or 12 uh he this story ends Pravana is not telling it to anyone really in particular. She's alone at this point. And it's when there's like warfare is like happening and she's outside this prison and she's trying to get somebody inside to give her her father back. And she's telling this story and it's almost like it's like self-soothing at this point that she's telling this story. And it culminates with this boy confronting the elephant king and it ends in this very strange way to me in a way, but I found it very affecting where he's just telling the story about how he died, which you don't know at this point. And it's basically that he was blown up by a landmine uh, in the town. And it's it's very like shocking, I get. It's like emotional. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't really quite see it coming, I think, when that happened. Like that to me... So this whole time we have this, Parvana's telling the story to various people. 
And it starts out as a way to kind of perk people's spirits up and to maybe impart some like heroic wisdom in some ways, but it doesn't end that way at all. So I find that very interesting. Like it, it starts out with this generic hero's journey style and it ends in this way that's like very, I don't know, complex to me. I'm curious what you think about how they ended that story. She's she's put it to use in different ways. She's put it to use to engage with her brother and then her friend and to kind of take her out of the reality. But here she's finally using it to engage with the truth. And it's like she, she almost like becomes her own therapist. And it's like, yeah, we have to talk about your brother. We just you have to talk about it because like the grief is stored up inside. And this is kind of the aspect of it that ties it to that neorealism of like the bicycle thief. So like the bigger movement and it's existed in other countries at like different times, but basically it says it's like artists and people rising up to tell the mundane stories of what it's like to be part of the bigger story, because the news doesn't have time for all that. And it's even dismissing like the glamor of the art world and realism. And it's like, Oh, I'm going to paint a portrait and I'm going to go to art school and I'm going to get good at this. And then I'm going to make a career in the arts. It's saying like, no, fuck that art is about storytelling and these stories aren't being told. So we're going to give the movement a name. And then we're going to talk about like the true mundanity of what it's like in a life. And it just the, the wording of Solomon, yeah, is that how you say his name? Like Suleiman? I don't Well, her brother, her brother Solomon. <laughs> I know. Sorry, I'm fictional character. I'm getting your name wrong, but I, I do respect your journey. So he finally shouts his name to, you know, the force of nature, like this evil elephant that's like coming down on him. And he just tells this simple story. He in one line, he describes his sister's engagement with each other and how they're always fighting. He describes his mother as a writer and his dad as a teacher. And then one day he found a toy on the street. He picked it up and it exploded. And then that's the fucking end. He doesn't remember what happened after that because it was the end. It's just like- Yeah, that fucks me up. Like the saddest fucking thing you could do. That's like choking me up right now. He says it multiple yeah. times. Yes. It's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the, the repetition just really- pushes home. And I can just, you know, you can see kids focusing, like they're not crying when they see this movie. I, that makes sense to me. Like they're like figuring out that this is like, this could, this is the life of a kid. <laughs> that, And it's just a truth. It's not every kid and it's not them and it's not even their friends, but it is a kid somewhere in the world for sure. And that it's just like hard. <laughs> it's brutal. And, it's like yeah. 30,000 or something like civilian deaths in this like war in Afghanistan. And it's just like, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? That's fucking crazy. Ugh. And just like, I feel like it's so pithy to bring this back to the fucking hero's journey now that we've like come to this point. Possibly the most feelingsist point in cartoon feelings so far to date. Yeah, here we are. But there's something so visceral. Obviously, it's all extremely visceral. But when he's saying, like, I don't remember what happened after that because it's the end. Like, I think that's what to me is like, fuck the hero's journey. Yeah, put that in the trash because it's only helpful to a certain point because life isn't like that. And it, this is what life actually is. And like, it does end because the hero's journey is always about how you kind of overcome at the end and you become bigger than whatever you were 
and you're awesome. And like, uh, yeah, sometimes there's like a comeuppance for like this big mythic hero, but they were always larger than life anyway. And uh, I, I like that. That's what stories are to me. Like, this feels like such a sophisticated evolution of all of the cartoon saloons, like previous movies, again, like that are so intimately about storytelling and mythology and how those relate to people in their lives. And this is like more than just mythology helps us kind of relate to the world or mythology are these great stories that tie us to our place or to our culture. And then this one is like mythology helps us get through the shit times. And then just like you were saying, it helps us face our reality Mm -hmm. and like help us actually see what is happening. I don't know that it always helps us solve those problems, but maybe that's a good thing. Like maybe storytelling also isn't always about that. Like I think we both gravitate to those stories that are about something in a way that feels like you've learned something or like whatever. But sometimes it's about reckoning with something too. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean it's it's communication and there there's other there there's other ways to like enact change or whatever like doesn't these are like the the jumping off points right these are types of conversations and they're the way people connect it's like you know we started this show because it's hard to just talk about this shit at the bar or wherever and it's like you know we care about it so i guess we have to take it here but you know they're like communication begets communication like we watch these things then we talk about what they're about and then we make other things and then we like you know, do whatever else we do with our lives that hopefully makes us better people and like represent the types of things that we care about in stories. But I, I just think the, you know, on another level, just the craft of trying to figure out how to do this scene and weaving in this whole myth of the elephant king and the look of it, the aesthetic and how it pairs with the the real world. There's so much more texture in the elephant King story. And I just read a quick little, not to get like technical all of a sudden when we're being so emotional. (laughs) So anyway, After Effects. (laughs) But I think actually the rendering of of the look of this paper effect was extremely time consuming. So they're clearly really pushing to like make this interesting to look at because we get all these close-ups in this moment as this uh the brother's telling his his simple story we get a close-up look at the elephant we see the textures on like his little scales and they're they're all kind of unique it's just a totally different aesthetic than the kind of flatter look of the the real world so there's just something brutal about the look of this fantasy story that earlier on it was light and whimsical and the paper characters are jumping around the screen and there's a funny horse, but all of a sudden it's just so, uh, so textural and, and intense. I, th- I think it's just a great, it's just like a, a great move <laughs> from the studio. Like I, I would love to have been in the room for like however long it took him to like figure out how to pull this off in this like truly effective way. Yeah. That's cool. It's a little surprising almost. It is such a departure from the style and then it shows up so many times. Like I could easily see that being shot down by like the execs at like a Disney thing or whatever. Like why are you spending all this time doing this totally other thing? But thematically and in so many ways, it like adds so much to this movie. I really don't think it would be the same without it. Yeah. And, you know, reading some stuff what the, uh, about people were saying about the storytelling of this movie and how it's maybe it jumps a little too much between the Elephant King story and then Parvana's real journey. And it kind of like takes you out of one or the other. But I don't know. 
I, th- I think it's ambitious. Like, so I'm going to give it more credit simply for that. Maybe it's like not the best told version of this story. Maybe it, maybe there's a better version that has a little less Elephant King in it. But the payoff for this last scene, uh, I don't know, I think was was worth what they were trying to do leading up to it, even if it's not like perfect. Yeah, it's really funny. It's like the longer we're talking about this, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, I think this movie is like a masterpiece, actually. I didn't think that when I was watching it necessarily, but like, it's fucking good. Like, maybe all it takes, well, no, that sounds dismissive. I don't like that. But like, I think a movie can be so ambitious that it elevates it to that status. Yeah, totally. I don't even know what it means for a movie to be perfect anymore anyway. That doesn't really mean anything to me. But like, when I was watching this, I didn't think like, oh, yeah, like, I love this movie. Like, you know, Spider-Verse. But that's not the same thing. It's not fucking the same at all in any way. And I really like this movie sticking with me in a lot of ways. And I think it's really well made. So maybe masterpiece status. I agree. I think it's like I I agree with you. I think when something is ambitious and it's trying to do what I consider the right thing. And I think you and I have similar feelings on what it means to do the right thing with storytelling. I would call that like kind of a masterpiece because it's it's going in the direction that I care about and whether it like nails it, I don't even, yeah, I don't know what that means either. And, you know, on the Spider-Verse point, I think it's, you know, it's important that we have stories that fit in these different like realms. Like Spider-Verse is so much easier to watch and maybe it's not hitting on these hard to address topics, but more people are watching it and they're watching it more often, which really can add up over time. This movie is not a true uh, rewatchable. <laughs> yeah. Like I want to watch it again, but it's more it's st- it's more effort, honestly. And I don't know if I'll watch it a third time anytime soon. Um, whereas Spider-Verse, you can just throw that on. Yeah, it's like some of the best movies, honestly, <laughs> right? are like that too, because they are so emotional mm-hmm. or like a little more demanding. Like Spider-Verse doesn't take work for me to watch. Right. And even going back to like when we were talking about Pixar and we're talking about Up and how we don't really watch it that much. I like I kind of regret that in a way because we said like it feels like more work to watch and it's not like, oh, it's a bad thing. Like, oh, it's like a chore to watch this. It's just like it asks a little bit more of you, you know, like it's like here are real feelings you need to feel. And like I'm we're not always up for that, especially in this day and age where everything is bad only and we're just hanging on by a third. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to cry in the first 10 minutes of this movie today. I don't know if I have it in me. Yeah. Uh, But I do hope that I revisit this movie, you know, sooner than later. But yeah, that's true. I guess, honestly, if we're talking about career goals here, I hope I make a movie someday that people only want to watch once. I feel like maybe that's kind of a a badass (laughs) place to be in a lot of ways. New career goal. I wonder if this is being shown in schools because I think it was in uh, Secret of Kells. I had read a little bit about teachers like showing this in classrooms and stuff. I wonder if this is entered in that. And I think that's sometimes the status of like the movies that people only want to watch once. Sometimes they become like they fit in the educational category and that's fine. It's not as glamorous. A hundred percent. But I mean, you know, but it's like an important space and it's almost more important because it goes unmentioned. I think it's it's not fun to write an article about a movie that's trying to like inform and help you engage with people that you'll probably never meet. That That's not going to get as many clicks, but it does fit a category and teachers and librarians 
and th those people whose job it is to literally help kids engage with the world will find it and they'll do something with it. And maybe nobody will ever talk about it, but it is going to be like part of a quietly a part of a bunch of people's lives. To me, that's like kind of a magical place to be with yeah. something you make. Like, you know, some of your work could be that, like some of your stuff that's just thrown up on YouTube. Yeah, no, I know a lot of teachers would show that stuff to their classrooms. Yeah. Like sometimes they would email me about it because <laughs> it's like, it's educational ostensibly. And that does feel good. Then it does feel good. Like I'm actually doing something for people. Yeah. And not purely just being like, oh, I have a story to tell. So like pay for it because it's so good. Like not that that's a bad thing, you know, but I don't know. It feels good to have this overt, like people get something out of this. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's more like you're planting a seed than like shooting off a firework or something. It's like, well, all right, everybody saw the firework and now it's gone. But like, sometimes a story just resonates in a way that you can't even explain. And then it, it emerges later. Right. I think that's even a thing in something we watched. Wasn't there like a planting of a seed? And that was like the story. I don't know. I'm sure. This is a, no, a that's never come up in any cartoon before. <laughs> used over and over again but yeah there's some there's something magical in that and and like hiding the things inside the story that are gonna resonate in ways that like you can't explain at the time yeah and honestly like name one artist that didn't get shown something in school and then have that become like an intimate part of their we like their web of inspirational content like that is how it happens for a lot of people so that's very true That's all for now. Join us next week as we shed our human skin and return to the forests of Ireland with the grand finale of our Cartoon Saloon series uh, with Wolf Walkers. Bow wow. Arf, arf. <laughs> we know what wolves sound like. <laughs> so you can share your thoughts and questions by writing to Caitlin and I at Cartoon Feelings Podcast at Gurmail. Dot com. If you're enjoying the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd consider rating us on Apple Podcasts, leave a note, slip it under our door, or however you want to get us some nice thoughts. That'd be great. And of course, if you like the show and you got some other cartoon friends, share it with them. Uh, if you'd like to check out our episode archive, maybe catch up on our Cartoon Saloon episodes one and two uh, and read some facts about Ira and Keelan, myself, uh, you can find all that stuff at cartoonfeelings.com or check us out on our social medias, which you will find at Feeling Cartoons on Twitter and Instagram. That's all, folks. I will see you next time. Bark, bark. <laughs> <laughs>